Lord, thank you for uh, being able to be here this morning, worshipping you, Lord, such an awesome, mighty God. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you just give us day after day. Every new day is a blessing from you, Lord. We just thank, thank you for Gary here, and as he brings your word to us, just pray for him in your awesome name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Cool. Thank you. Uh, just on the side, who drew my horse? Oh, good on you, Ross. Good, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> well, I hope you have had a really great week. It's um, Normally I always open up with that, but normally I have had a great week, but this week I haven't. This week, or the week and a half, <coughs> I have had the man flu. Now, I'm not quite sure if... I read this or I've made it up, but apparently the man flu is three times greater than a woman's flu. And they've proved that, that the man goes downhill quicker with this virus than a lady. So technically you should feel twice as much or sorry for me than you do a lady. <clears throat> My wife didn't, by the way. So I battled on with Ephesians 2 this week uh, with my nose dripping my throat, I couldn't swallow, with a headache and an earache, and this is what I come up with. So if it kind of goes off topic, you'll probably know why. And so <coughs> I've been given this great start of this chapter, Ephesians 2, and we'll let's read it together and see how we go through it. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among you also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love, because of his love, which, sorry, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised, up, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace to his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What an amazing seven verses we have this morning before us. Some say, some commentators say it's very like Genesis 1, how Genesis 1 starts off, Genesis 1 and verse 2. We have a scene of desolation, and so we do in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. In Genesis 1-2, the latter part of verse 2, we see God's divine power as we do here in Ephesians 2 verses 4 to 6. And in Genesis 1 and verse 3 to 31, we have creation to new life. And we do as well here in Ephesians 2 and verses 5 to 22. These first three verses are probably one of the saddest three verses you'll read about yourself. Uh, the three things I really want to deal with today and to look at 
you know, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, says verse 1. Verse 2 said, we walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. We were sons of the disobedience, among who also we conducted ourselves. It gets worse and worse and worse with our flesh, fulfilling our fleshly desires with our mind. So by nature, we were children of wrath. And I want to look at these three, of what we were. Remember, we are dealing with the first three chapters of Ephesians in our position in Christ, what our position is. And then we're going to look at, certainly later on from, verse, uh, from chapters 4 or 5, uh, our practice and what we should do because of our position. So this is our position and what we were, and we're going to look at that. We were Firstly, we were dead. That's what we were. We were disobedient. And lastly, we were doomed. We were dead, we were disobedient, and then we were doomed. It's not a great position to be in, is it? Okay, first of all, in verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were dead. Trespasses here is the word that draws our attention to the acts of sin. We were dead committing trespasses in the state of sin. This is the complete opposite of what the world tells us about ourselves now, isn't it? As humans, it tells us basically the worldview that we are basically good. You're okay. If only you would just believe in yourselves, you can do better. In fact, you can do better than better. You can do anything if you just believe in yourselves. When I was sick, I was watching TV this week, and I saw there was a documentary on Oprah Winfrey, and it was about her going to Australia a couple of years ago. And it was amazing to see how this lady can pull the crowds. And I was watching this, and in her, the stadium in Australia, it seated 100,000 people had come out to listen, to see her, to see who she interviewed and what pearls of wisdom she had to say. And they interviewed people before they were going in to this massive stadium to hear Oprah Winfrey. And they interviewed these couple of ladies, and they said, this is going to change our lives. This will be the start of a life-changing experience to hear this woman speak to us. Another woman they interviewed, she started off, and she started weeping. She couldn't control herself, and she starts weeping, just knowing that through them doors, she will hear this great woman and great advice. And another couple said, now my life will have purpose. And I couldn't believe I was even watching this. I thought, how crook am I <coughs> that this is on TV? Am I listening right? Now my life will have purpose. These were all women, because predominantly they're women going in to hear her. And so a change of life, change of purpose and weeping as they go and hear this woman. But the truth is, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey cannot help you. She cannot help you. She cannot improve on death. She cannot improve on your disobedience. And she certainly cannot improve that you are doomed without Christ. But people flock to her in this world. I don't know if any of you have seen, it's probably one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride. And here in this Princess Bride was Wesley. He was a man after true love. 
but they sucked the life out of him, these bad people. It was a funny movie. So they sucked the life out of them. So his mates bring them to this little man called Miracle Max. And Miracle Max looked at Wesley and said, Aha, he is not completely dead, only mostly dead. And so he makes him a pill and he comes alive again. One of my favourite movies. But Miracle Max cannot help us because we are not mostly dead as Wesley was. We're completely dead. We were dead without hope. We were dead in our trespass and sins. No hope for us. So that's the first point. Just to top it off, we were disobedient in verses 2 and 3. Paul goes on to describe how we disobeyed God just like our parents did. In fact, he goes down, instead of following God, we, we followed three evil forces, if you like. One, we followed the world. Two, we followed Satan. And three, we followed our fleshly desires, or some of the modern translations, our sinful desires. And so Paul comes off again. We're disobedient. We follow the world. And a person not walking with God is controlled by the world. It's controlled by its influences, its value of its age, uh, they assume the attitudes, its habits, and its lifestyle of this culture. And so, without God, we follow the world in verse 2. Not only do we follow the world, but we follow Satan himself. We don't think we are, but we do. And here, Scripture names him the prince of the power of the air, or the ruler. And the Old Testament term, really, for this, or prince, is a national, local, or tribal ruler. And this is how Satan is described. The Gospels describe him in Matthew 9 and 12 as the ruler of demons. John, in John chapter 12 and 14 and 16, he is the ruler of the world. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4 as the God of this age. This is the one who lays out the bait, traps people before they know it, and they're following him and disobeying God. In verse 3, we follow our sinful desires. The desires of the flesh. These are associated probably more than likely with Galatians 5, 16 to verses 21, where Paul describes there our sinful or fleshly desires. And they are anger, sexual immorality, idolatry, jealousy, drunkenness. Romans 8 says that those who follow the flesh cannot please God. So we're dead. We're disobedient. And in that disobedience, we follow the world, we follow Satan, we follow our own desires. The question is, is Paul here getting a bit carried away? Is our condition really that bad as he describes it? Surely it can't be. But the answer is no. In fact, it gets worse. Paul keeps going. And he says, now that you're dead, now that you've disobeyed, you're now doomed. In verse 3, he says, by nature, you are children of God's wrath to come. Dead in verse 1, disobedient in verse 2, children of wrath in verse 3. Because of our condition, we are under the wrath of God. It reminds me of a story I knew, I think it's true, of a man named Jeremy Beetham. Now, he lived from 1748 to 1832. He was a philosopher, 
He founded the great religion called the Greatest Happiness Principle, and he was very, very rich. When death came a knocking, he decided that he would leave all his money to a London hospital on one condition, that in every month they have a board meeting, he was to be present. Even though he was dead, he wanted to be at that board meeting. Excuse me, I'll just grab my water. And so they agreed. To get the money, his millions, they would bring him in in each board meeting. And in the minutes, if you look back, if you can go to that hospital and you look at the minutes, it will say, for every month, in the minutes, a line read, Mr. Jeremy Beetham, present, but not voting. And I thought to myself when I read that story, that is just like us. Without Christ, yes, we're living through this world, but our position is, is that we're dead because we have disobeyed and we will have the wrath of God on ourselves. So we were present, but we're not voting. We're not doing anything useful. And so Paul gets our attention in these first three verses. He draws our attention to the depth of our condition. And he does so in order to magnify someone. You know, Paul, like, when verse, when verse 4 comes up, I'm just amazed at it. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Paul here to me is like a, like a retailer, like a diamond retailer. I remember many moons ago, I went right into the city of Ireland in Northern Ireland, into Belfast, into that city, and there I picked up my wife's engagement ring. It is a real diamond. She does wonder at that fact because it's so small, but it, it is a real diamond. <coughs> and when I went there, and I went there specifically for a reason because my grandfather bought his grandmother's uh, engagement ring there. My father bought his mother and my brother-in-law bought my sister's engagement ring there. So when I was over there, I went in, I knew I was going out with Kath for four years, I decided to take the plunge and buy an engagement ring. So I went to this shop and they come out in every diamond shop, they put a black rag down. It's black, it's velvet, it's, it's just super black. And on that black velvet, they put the diamond. Why do they put the diamond? Because it will give it more glow, more luster, and more light. And it looks twice as expensive as it really should be. And I asked for discount, I've got to confess, because I said, you know, I told them the story and she just looked at me blankly, interesting. But there was the price. And so I bought that there. And that's what I think it's like Paul is doing here. He puts out this black cloth. And you know what? You can't get any blacker than you and me. Dead, disobedient, doomed, here you go. And now Paul comes in with verse 4. The diamond, of course, is God's great mercy and his great, great love. There's a story which kind of touched me as I thought of this verse 4 coming in after how terrible we are, how we've mucked up, how we are deep in our sin and we can't do anything about it, but God in rich and mercy 
because of his great love for us. There was a story told by John Phillips, and it kind of sums it up for me. And I'll just read it out. The growing, he went to visit a man. A growing daughter of a man I know is an alcoholic. I was visiting his home one day when she was delivered to the door in a grip of, a terrible, of her terrible vice. She had drunk almost an entire bottle of whiskey. Her temper was flaming and abusive. Her face was flushed, her manner was rude, and her actions were violent. I thought of this young girl I had met years before, before drink had laid its devilish hand on her life. I looked at the picture of this young woman, unspoiled, still hanging on the wall of this man's home. And I pitied the poor soul with all my heart for the terrible shipwreck she had made of her life. For she had ruined her womanhood, and her slavery was such a cruel and relentless tyrant. Her father, though, took her gently by the arm, ignoring her abuse. He steered her unsteadily, steps, footsteps to his car. He carefully settled her in, her face drawn, her eyes filled with pain. She thrashed around, but patiently strapped her into, but he patiently strapped her into the seat, and he drove her home and put her to bed. And John Phillips says, as the car went away, he said, my heart was full of pity, but the father's heart was full of love. And he said, that is the difference between man and God. Yes, in many occasions for me, and I see people in the street or you see the homeless, you pity them. But God does not. God loves them. Multiply, John Phillips says, her wretchedness by all the misery sin has wrought in this world, and then multiply her father's love by infinity. Such is God's love for you and me. We really do have to praise God for verse 4 when he comes in here in the state that we're in, and he comes and rescues us in his sin, in, in his son, sorry. I remember years ago, I used to, when I was a Christian dad, had all the old books, the old brethren books, the Darbys, the Coateses, and I used to go through them and read them. Always interesting, trying to figure out their language. William Kelly, I gave up at an early age because I just didn't understand him, but I read a lot of Darby's writings and his letters to people, which was a bit confusing because you never got the letter what it was asking, but you always just got an answer, if you like, through his letters. But I read a lot of them. And one time Darby was at a meeting and there was a whole lot of elders there from the Brethren at the start because he was the, basically the founder of the Open Brethren movement or the Brethren movement. And they got into a complicated discussion about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And they thought to themselves, we're pretty clever, aren't we, Mr. Darby, getting into this big discussion. But he said, you know, sometimes I find in life, as I get older now, that the simple things are more lovely to me than the complicated things of Scripture. And when I read down the, this over the last couple of weeks, it's not complicated. It's simple, but it's so deep. And these simple things, again, can touch our hearts at who we were and yet who we are now in Christ Jesus. Our hearts should leap for joy as we read 
verse 4. Verse 5 carries on. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now I'm not going to get into that because I realized as I looked on the planner that Jeff has only three verses next week and he has got, for grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, but of the gift of God. And I thought if I take and look at, by grace you have been saved, I might only leave him with two and a half verses. So I'm very kind like that. So I'll leave verse five. Verse six, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is another awesome wonder, an awesome verse. <clears throat> God has seated us on his throne, his glorious throne. In Christ, we are seated where Christ is. That's incredible. God covers us in Christ. And so when he sees him or sees us, he sees him. No matter how or when God sees us and looks at us, he sees his son there and the preciousness of him, all his beauty of his holiness, all the glory of his love, all the splendor of his person. Now in Christ, our position has changed from what we were to what we are now, being made alive in Christ. A complete, a black and white, if you like, description of what we were. But if we trust in Christ and his work on Calvary, we are changed. Like the tabernacle of the Old Testament and the boards of the tabernacle or the boards of the, the, um, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, underneath twisted acacia wood. Nothing, just twisted acacia wood, but covered in gold. And such is with us. God looks at us and sees Christ. He has raised us from the tomb and placed us on a throne. Surely that should amaze us incredibly of what he has done. Verse 7 ends, <clears throat> my part anyway, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace, his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is a miracle of transforming grace. It will be the subject more than likely the theme of eternity. Throughout the endless ages, God will be unveiling to us, heavenly cre uh, creation, what it cost him to send his son into this world of sin and what it cost the Lord Jesus to come and to bear the weight on the cross for us. It begs the thought if God is going to be disclosing throughout eternity, then will we be learning forever? Well, if so, William MacDonald described it as this, then heaven will be our school. God will be our teacher. We will be his students and grace will be our subject. And the school term will be eternity. Now, I know not being a liker of school myself, that would have put me off one day. But now, when you just get a glimpse of who Christ is and what he has done, it would be great to spend eternity looking and going over the grace of God and what it cost him. In the meantime, 
we are here on earth. And grace should be exhibited through this church. The ultimate vehicle of its expression to the world that is looking on. That's what we should be known by, grace. We talked about it. We sung about it this morning. Dave opened up with five songs looking at the mercy and the grace of God. And in a sense, it gave, man's sin gave, it was all that, that question, isn't it? And it's, this is probably not just an easy answer, but that question of why did God let the earth carry on and man, knowing that man would sin, well, it gave him the opportunity to display a side of his character that otherwise might never have been fully revealed to us. And now we can see his great love. In creation, we see his power and his wisdom. But here, God demonstrates not just his grace, not just the riches of his grace, but the exceeding riches of his grace. I've got this, uh, I got it for my... um, about 43rd birthday, a guy down south gave me a knife. It's a carving knife. It's one of a kind, this carving knife, and it means so much to me. It's got this big blade. It's about that big. It's made by one of Australasia's top knife makers, Peter Latour. And it's about this big. The handle, the steel runs right through it. Teak handle around it brass at each end on the, on, the, uh, on the end and on the, what do you call it, on the shoulder. And then this knife, it's just beautiful. It's just kind of just about, you can see that it's beaten by hand. One of a kind. It retails, if you want a knife like this, it's 495 at Mooch, uh, which is a retail chain down south, very high end. And so he bought me this. And it comes in, Peter Latour makes its own boxes for it. And, and it slips in this box and the, the lid just covers it. And it's, you know, I, I just thought this was magnificent. And I don't let anyone touch it. In fact, I don't even let my wife use it. And she will yell out sometimes when I'm watching sport or watching TV, uh, Gary, the chicken's ready to, you know, cut. You're going to slice the chicken. And I say, no, nah, I'm watching sport. She goes, well, I'll use your knife then. So that gets me off my seat. I run into the kitchen and grab my knife. She doesn't touch my knife. And there I slice it properly. And I actually, no, I'm not making this up, but I actually wash it myself and put it away because I don't trust her. And so my knife goes back to bed. And it it is just beautiful. Now, not everyone can touch my knife. A few months ago, Bruce and Raywin were here. Now, Bruce is a knife man. So I let Bruce touch my knife. So Bruce, you may touch my knife. And he goes, it's, it's a good knife. And he gives it back, a oh, good knife. I put it away and we have that great deep conversation about knives. But for instance, if Peter's son was to come to my door and he knocks on the door and he says, Gary, could I please see your knife? Okay, that might have been Pakistani. I'm not quite sure, Pete. <laughs> but anyway, I'd have to say, Pete, you're not a knife man. You cannot see my knife and you cannot especially touch my knife. And then there's another knock on the door and maybe it's Andrew Linton. And I look down and, hey, Andrew, how are you? Because Andrew's small. (laughs) Andrew looks up to me and goes, oh, Gary, I've heard about this knife. Please show me your knife. And I'll say, sorry, Andrew, you're not a knife man. You can't touch my knife. 
But John O'Linton comes in. And John O's actually taller than his dad, of course. And John O says, Can I see your knife? And I'd let John O come in and have a look at my knife and probably touch my knife because he's a knife man. And such is my fascination with this knife that I love it so. One day I had the opportunity to see where my knife came from. Uh, we were doing the rail trail down Southland and we're going from, uh, where is it, Alexandra to Hines, I think it was. And so it's a two-day bike. And my mate Jace, who bought me this knife, said, we're going through a little town called Omakau, 20 minutes outside Alexandra. We'll stop for a coffee there, and I'll show you where your knife is made. Oh, what's this going to be like? Will it be that I get there and there's marble floors and there's beautiful, you know, whatever, you know, wooden wooden sides and the knives will be displayed and there'll be no prices on them because if you have to ask the price of these knives, you can't afford it. And it will be beautiful. And I'll go out the back and here will be this knife maker and this beautiful painted concrete floor and everything will just be beautiful. Well, I was disappointed. Went into Omakau. Omakau is a wee town that has probably died but is coming back to life again slowly because of the rail trail. And every third shop or every second shop closed for sale, for lease, closed for sale, for lease. Till we come to this big hardware store, closed. And on the side of this hardware store is this little shack. And it's got this little, little kind of sign on it, Peter Latour Knives. And so we park our bikes, all in our lycra, and we walk in. The floor, well, it wasn't made of marble, it was a dirt floor and it was all up and down, and he leases this place. There was no lights, so he runs a generator so he can see what he's doing. On one side, we had to be careful because he had a whole stack of bones still with blood and everything on them because he does bone-handled ones as well, which I own two of. And, and on the other side is just this crumpled lot of metal. It's just twisted, and, and we walk in, and when you walk in, the powder of the dust comes up. It's filthy. And we finally get to this terrible little place, and here he is, heating up some steel and hammering it and hammering it and hammering it. And I couldn't believe it as I walked away that this is where my knife had come from. And now every time I use my knife, I look at it and think, wow, you came from a little shack in Omakau in a dusty, filthy, unlit shed. How could something so beautiful come from such a place? And when I read Ephesians 2, I see the same thing. I see myself this week and I look through it and just pondering on it. I saw myself dead in my sin, disobedient towards God, that I followed at one stage, till I was 21, that I followed Satan, I followed my own desires, and I followed this world. But for some reason, God came into my life, and he plucked me out of that little, terrible, filthy shed, and he made me into something new. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved me. Is that you today? Is that you still following your own desires, still disobeying God, still walking after this world and the things of it? The Bible calls you dead. The Bible says that you will be doomed without his loving hand, his loving Christ, his loving Son, in which he gave to you and me. Maybe today it will be that you'll hear his voice, that you'll submit to his, not just mercy, but his rich mercy, not just his love, but his great love in which he loved you and gave himself for you. And your position will change from being dead to being alive and your position will be that you'll be seated with him on his throne. Man, what a black and white story we have. Shall we pray? Our Father, we give you thanks for your word today. We give you thanks that when we look back with sadness on who we were and how we lived and what we did and what we thought, everything was against you. But because of your great love and sending your one and only son to this world to take upon our sin to deal with your wrath because of him if we trust in him we have eternal life we will be seated with you we will know you we will have a relationship with you not only our position changed but our life changed as well. Father, we do pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, we pray you will touch their hearts to a life that will be incomprehensible to follow you, to change direction. What, a, what that will be to them. We do pray, Father, that you do touch the lives of anyone here who does not know you. And Father, give us the ones who do know you. Give us that joy. Give us to just to look back on what we were, but what you have made us now. May it bring life in perspective of how we should live and how we should treat one another, that we were once dead but now alive in you. So Father, thank you so much for your word. It's uh, in the Saviour's name we give thanks. Amen. Thank you.